Well, hello and welcome to Inexos Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co-hosting this series of podcasts with my Inexos nerd, Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums, and oh, so much more. Well, hi, it's B here. Welcome back to part two of Alex Poyas, Kissing the Dirt and Hollywood 24. If you haven't checked out part one, check it out first and then part two begins now. What you capture very well is each band member and their instrument they're playing, whether it's the drums, the keyboards, the guitar parts, the solos, it really feels, you know, live. Sometimes you can see bands in videos that look like they're miming and rehearsing and whatever. You sort of captured a live element that was important to the band, particularly on this album. There's an inherent absurdity with being playing electrified guitars in the middle of a desert. And so, you know, early on we went, we're not going to have we're not going to have wires, uh, cables stick coming out of them. And it's just like, where does it end? You know, then you go, does the cable run right back to Sydney and there's some amp sitting in you know, a studio somewhere that's got power to it? <laughs> so that, it's, the, it's the performance. And you don't, you never, I mean, everyone knows music videos are playback and whatever. You want to sell it, you know. Hmm. It's like everyone knows James Bond is not really being pursued and he's not, not having to run um, for away from the baddies, but... But if you sell it, if the actor sells it, you, you're with it. You're with the moment, you know, you're in the moment. It's the same with music videos, you know. I mean, I worked with some bands who were kind of really cynical about the so-called live aspect of their performance and they'd take the, the strings off their guitars or do silly stuff to say, hey, we're being yeah. cool. It's like I go, that's no fun. Just sell the, sell the yeah. song. You know? It's your song. Yeah. It's your work. It's your art. Yeah. Would you have liked to have done more in um, videos with them? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I kind of got sidetracked. Yeah. Well, in, in excess became huge. I mean, around that time they were becoming huge, right? Yeah. And, and I was not becoming huge, but I was becoming huge in my own humble way, you know. And I was getting a lot of work. I started going to the States. Like literally uh, the Crowded House video, which is really the one that got me, Don't Dream It's Over is the one that got me to the US. Beautiful. When that song went to, I think it went to number two Mm -hmm. and it was on high rotation in MTV, I went, I'm just going to go to LA, you know. I landed in LA. I got representation with a company called Propaganda Films and I got work and I had to call my friends and loved ones back in Sydney and say, hey, I'm not going to come back for a while. I think I'm here to stay. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. 
Mouse one was so good. And then obviously I think he did their Better Be Home Soon one off their next album. Mm. A broader question. A lot of videos get filmed on video, but I, I, I sense that some of your videos obviously were made on made with film. Most videos were shot on 16 mil, but I was pedantic about shooting 35 mil. Yeah. I mean, the NXS one particularly. I'm not sure if you're aware five years later, six years later, but I, I really believe the Blue Sky uh, Mind film clip owes a lot to Kiss the Dirt. It's very, very similar structure with yeah. the intersections, the out, the, you know, the outdoor uh, setting in a, in rural Australia. I think that one owes a bit of homage uh, to you uh, and uh, the Kiss of the Dirt video. Well, Midnight Oil is the, one of the bands that we never quite did a video for, but we we kind of toyed with that. Yeah. And, but it was always about schedule because these guys were like, you know, all the bands, and Midnight Oil was certainly a, a hugely successful band at this time too. Um, as you know, the, the single's going to come out, the video, this is the week you're going to shoot the video. And if I'm doing something else, as much as I'd love to, I can't do it. You went on to work with uh, Yes and you went on to work with Sting. Uh, were they in those videos uh, from memory or were they sort of more separate from the artist videos? The Yes video, very small appearances. We had to shoot the band in a hotel room in Philadelphia because they were on tour, right? right? It's a, it was a classic example yeah. of a be a certain time in a certain place. We set up a little blue screen, I think, in someone's hotel room and and I'm trying to convince John Anderson not to wear the cheesy makeup that he loved wearing, <laughs> all these swirls on his eyes which made him look like an idiot. Yeah. And then we did a whole bunch of stuff in L.A. We did a, created a whole cinematic universe for Yes in L.A., but that was uh, as closest to Spinal Tap as I could have ever came in my career. <laughs> I'd assume it must get demoralising when you come with these great ideas and you just don't have enthusiasm from the client. Well, you know, look, I mean, the, this is the sad thing about music being a music video filmmaker, which is why I was happy to kind of leave it behind at a certain point because a lot of the times, not in excess, in excess certainly reaffirmed my fandom about them as a band and as musicians and as consummate professionals, which they which they were. But so many bands were ruined. Their music forevermore has been ruined because of my experience making a music video for them. You know, right. most of the people that you mentioned early on um, in this interview are people that I, I can't listen to their music anymore, you know, um, though I would have wanted to probably if, if I hadn't made a video. Are we talking know. Sting here? <laughs> Sting is uh, is one of the most pretentious human beings I've ever encountered. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah, yeah, which is is no surprise. No, it's not a surprise at all. That that's saying something that I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised at the extent of the pre pretentiousness. There's two stings. There's Sting in the Police, and then there's Sting Solo. And I just yeah, yeah. I cut off at eighty three. Same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. I was sadly unfortunate. I mean, Sting was my last video, yeah. and there's a good reason why. There's a reason why. Yeah. I saw that in the timeline. So <laughs> you just say, so I don't need to deal with this shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, but but it's, it's so many of them, and I don't want I don't want this to turn into like a on rock stars. I love rock stars. Let's go dump on Will Smith. Tell us about Will Smith and iRobot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, the, look, Will Smith is a great guy, and he's great. He's a great friend. I still am shocked by yeah. what he what happened with Will, yeah. so I can't. He's not someone I would say anything bad about. No. But Mike Oldfield, on the other hand, I'm happy to tell you some <laughs> stories about him. Now, now, Mike Oldfield, B, you, would, you, you went around when 
Okay, I was about to give you a compliment and say you weren't around when Tubular Bells was released. I was very young. <laughs> He's an actor, that Mike Oldfield, and I'm going to forget people's names, which is going to be really embarrassing to tell this story. But anyway, so me and my producer went to a, a chap called Andrew McPhail at the time who'd also done the In Excess video with, and he was part of this group called Meaningful Eye Contact, which is a group that made the, the, all those videos. And so me and, and Andrew went to, flew to London. We were actually asked by Jeff Ayeroff, uh, who was the A&R guy at Virgin in the US, to do a Mike Offield video. And we went, great, Mike Offield, fantastic. Um, but we soon discovered that Virgin were a thing because Mike Offield was still part owners. Of- His tubular bells had subsidised the, the launch of it, hadn't they, really? The beginning, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what made yeah. it possible. He and um, the Virgin man... Um, Richard Branson. Branson. Yeah, Richard Branson were partners and they built this thing called Virgin and Mike was a very, very wealthy man um, to the point where he had his own post-production studio in his mansion in the countryside of the UK, just outside of London, and he lived the life of a what I presume people like, you know, big, big stars like Paul McCartney and whatever might live. And so we were invited out to to Mike's mansion because I'm a naive young kid. I, I knew none of this stuff, right? We found out the hard way about all this stuff. And I'm like, Mike wants you to post-produce the video in his house. And I'm like, in those days, I mean, very expensive machinery to be able to post-produce a music video to a very high standard. But he had it all in his house. He had this full studio. Me being the kind of arrogant kid, I'm like, I don't know about that. You know, I need to sort of see what this facility is like before I can put my name on this thing. You know, he brings us out to his very impressive mansion, which is probably worth $10 billion. We're on the dole like the year before. So we're just kind of, we're pretty impressionable people, you know. And but I'm like, it's a disaster. Like none of it works. You know, and he had a he had a recording studio as well, and it's just a complete disaster. And so he wants to do all the VFX work and stuff on his own machines, right? And he's a clever guy, you know, he's a smart guy, and he was very much ahead of the curve with all the technology. But I'm like, this is going to be terrible. He's going to do what he wants to do. I'm not going to like it. It's going to the music is going to be piece of shit when it comes out. So I pushed back, right? You know, he took it very calmly on the day, but we go back to our hotel and that evening we're sitting in some shitty hotel in the middle of Soho in London and the phone rings and me and Andrew, my producer, we're sharing the same room because that's all we could afford, right? We have a couple of beds and there's a phone in between them, right? And the phone rings and Andrew picks it up and he he goes, "Uh uh-huh, oh, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, yes, yes, certainly. Yes, we can certainly do that. Yes, no problem. No problem. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And he hangs up and he goes, that was Richard Branson telling us that if we don't work at Mike's studio, he's going to sue us. Oh. oh, well, I guess working at Mike's studio. Bring a cut lunch. <laughs> <laughs>
going into your, your Hollywood career, were you a Robert Altman fan in terms of his work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I actually got to work with Robert Altman's sound recorders. Oh, great. There's a fantastic movie that uh, me and my late mother went to see in 93 called The Player that I have to laugh and it feels symptomatic of almost movie making nowadays. You probably know the Michael Tolkien book and yeah, yeah. effectively B. It's about the workings of inner Hollywood and the cynicism of how a movie gets made and essentially this great pure idea that starts the movie off with no stars. By the end of the movie, you've got Bruce Willis running in and Julia Roberts about to be killed and traffic was a bitch. You know, like there's this evolution of a great idea that's been completely corrupted by Hollywood. Mm. Making movies now, you know, bringing it full circle to the start of our interview, there's this era now where I feel like the bubble's bursting with all these uh, superhero movies. They're all floundering. Do you see a time where innovation outside the directors and things, but Hollywood will be more investing in, uh, I don't know, new ideas? Do you think that will come from them or do you think it comes from the directors like yourself who come up with the ideas? No, look, I, I have a pretty grim view when I look into my crystal ball and I don't know that we are in very good shape in the film industry at the moment. You know, I fell in love with a big screen and a particular certain filmmakers and et cetera, um, and a certain way of making films. And I, I see that dying. I think it's already dead, quite frankly, that way of making films. Um, and, yeah, dead at the hands of the franchises, but more so dead at the, at the hands of the lack of imagination in Hollywood, you know. Um, because, you know, I mean, for years now I've been bemoaning this, this, the superheroes Everyone's gone, oh, but there's been cycles in of genres forever, ever and day. And while that's true, there have been cycles of the cop movie or the musical or the comedy or whatever, or the Western, which came and went and died. My point is that they were all running at the same time. So that when one when people got sick of the cop movie or got sick of the Western there were other things that could come in and take their place. Whereas what's happened now is that everyone has put all their eggs in the basket of the superhero, right? Because they've, they've you know, it's the pot of gold for everyone. And now it's mm. dying. Now that mm. is dying. Now Marvel is starting to fail. Surprise, surprise. We knew it was going to happen. Everyone knew it was going to happen. But yeah. there ain't nothing else to take over. But the Guardian of a Galaxy, that stands out, doesn't it? Don't you think? I haven't. Look, I don't watch the movies, so I can't say. And I'm sure there's some good ones. I'm not saying... <gasps> yeah, but it's got a good mixture of comedy and, and music as well, special effects. Look, I was offered the the very first the movie that started this whole phrase off, which was the first Iron Man. They offered me that movie. And the reason they okay. offered me that movie is because I made a movie called The Crow, right? Um, and that mm -hmm. that was kind of back in the 90s, early 90s, that kind of really did, you know, I mean, Tim Burton's Batman was before before us. The Crow had a lot to do with reinvigorating a whole idea of new superheroes that had not been done before, right? It's a very cool movie, yeah. So Marvel came to me mm. as the first port of call about Iron Man, and I hate the script. I hated the script because I don't know whether you know much about Iron Man, but Iron Man is a fucking totalitarian weapons arms developer, you know, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm the guy and, to make that he, movie, you know. And, um, he, and he's about fourth fourth string on knowledge base of superheroes. I never even knew him as a kid with the comics. I'd never heard of him. That movie, that's the movie that started this whole thing. Well, they had a great actor, yeah, didn't they? That started Marvel, right? That's the movie that 
Mm. Started the Marvel Cinematic Universe and then they went, you know, Iron Man 2 and they started doing all the other ones, right? So here mm. we are. Um, and I don't doubt that there are good movies in there. I've seen them personally because I don't like the shit. Yeah. Which is interesting because you're sci-fi. Other people say Guardians is great and Nolan's Batman and is great, whatever. But, but honestly, mm. it's been the death of big Hollywood movies. It's been the death of it. There is no doubt in anyone's mind, right? And as I say right now, good, bad or indifferent, yeah, maybe they'll get another Guardians movie. Maybe there'll be another movie. I think they're finished. Every Marvel movie that came out last year failed. It failed. Every single Marvel movie and every Disney movie at the same time, right? Yeah, and And all the Star Wars movies are starting to fail. So, So literally all the franchises that they have put their eggs in the basket of are failing, right? And that's okay because that's what happens, but not when there's nothing else to take to take their place. And although, how many have we got of the Fast and Furious now? <laughs> yeah, well, Fast and Furious is not going to be with us very much. That, I mean, that one last one bombed too. But I think you're exactly right. You look back through, you know, some of the Oscar-nominated sort of great movies of the '70s, particularly, it was such a good era. Um, and also, you know, throughout the '80s and '90s, there was choice the consumer had. It just now, it's either a blockbuster movie at the cinema or you stream something at home that's made with a different set of parameters. You're right, there's not there's not an $8 million Kramer versus Kramer being made, you know, for adults on the side. Died a long time ago, yeah. But it actually, even even worse than that is now the indie-level films are going to are going to die. They're dying. Yeah. Like, literally, forget about $8 million. We're talking yeah. about three or four million. But Netflix has probably got a lot to do with that as well, with these TV series that they do. Oh, totally they've got something to do with and that. And they're amazing, some of the production on them. This is what's driving the economy of the, the industry right now, and mm. that's why everyone's put their eggs in the franchise basket is because people or audiences don't want to pay big bucks for movie tickets and popcorn and whatever else they've got to spend ridiculous money on on a big for a big screen when they can get something kind of close to it for free or close to free at home. This has devalued the cinematic experience, right? Mm. And so the studio, so it's, just, it's kind of a, a chicken and egg, right? But this is what feeds into all this stuff. And so the studios go, well, the only thing we can put money, big money budget into or any budget into, quite frankly, is a film that has proven franchise ability to bring an audience, right, who are going to go and spend money on a big screen entertainment. But they've eroded their own market anyway because even Marvel have started doing like TV series and stuff. And so it's like politics, right? Everyone tries to get what they can, blood out of the stone while they're in office. They don't care about the future. They don't care about anyone else other than their own profit bottom line, and to hell with it, they'll destroy the film industry. They'll destroy cinema-going experience because they can make more money now, right now, when they want it, right? Yeah. And, and this is yeah. and this is something that this era is absolutely guilty of. That wasn't the case when I was growing up watching Network and Chinatown and One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest and whatever, and also Star Wars, you know, which which I liked at the time, the first Star Wars, I'm that old. We had all sorts of stuff going on in movies, genuinely people who cared about the longevity, ironically, because now longevity is possible when you can you can buy a Blu-ray or a DVD and watch a movie from days gone by. In those days, you couldn't do that, right? But they were actually more concerned. They had more 
concern about the whole art form, carrying it forward, handing it down nobly to the next generation and growing and evolving and improving and making the best films possible. Now, well, don't you think Baz is doing that, though, with Elvis and when he did Australia and there's quite a lot. He's he's he's, he's gone very theatrical and onto the big screen. You're talking about one filmmaker. You're not talking about them. I'm talking about uh, the industry. Yeah, that's, talking that's, about that's the industry. Right. But still, it's like that will be a blockbuster. You know, people will pay big tickets. And I'm um, talking about uh, the people who finance films i'm not yeah. talking about filmmakers of yeah. course there are still filmmakers i wouldn't include baz in that mix who are doing great films somehow making it all work everyone else ain't being supported you know the, the new the new level of filmmakers are not being supported peter weir who i'm good friends with who's arguably australia's greatest filmmaker cannot get his next film financed right because he doesn't make films that have franchisable imagery associated with him. He makes great films, right? And he's wanting to make his next film and he's having a hard time getting films financed, as so many filmmakers are, because the industry doesn't care about that kind of filmmaking anymore. They're trying, as I say, they're trying to get the last dregs of the their profit out of the stone before the stone explodes in everyone's faces. And that's about to happen. There's a really good point that I'm glad you mentioned Peter Weir because I was about to mention the South Australian Film Commission. As a kid growing up in Australia, you know, in every Australian movie, you saw South Australian Film Commission. You know, we had, you know, Peter Weir, Fred Shepsey, we had Bruce Beresford, even Brian Trenchard, Smith or Jones or whatever doing his, his genre, you know, Aussie ploitation movies and things. But we had a vibrant industry that through grants and through government subsidies was was quite vital that created this sort of generation of filmmakers that went overseas. I mean, we look at... Peter Weir, you know, in Hollywood, you know, what he's done and Beresford and, and yourself and these ones, there was this there was this era of government support and, and financing art that I feel there's some stuff going on now with things, but it generally seems to go to blockbusters from overseas to bring American money in, doesn't it, really? Just to take advantage of our, our, of our, of our country and our rates. You know, it's not, it's, not, it's not nurturing like it was, is what I'm saying. I can't complain about that as much as I do often complain about that because yeah. the offset and all the government bodies were very supportive of my big blockbusters that I've shot in this country. Um, that's not really the cause that I'm no, fighting no. now. It's, it's actually about the mainstream of Hollywood filmmaking that's yeah. got completely broken and derailed, right? And that does reflect back on us in Australia because we in Australia keep trying to fit into the way the Americans do it, right, as we do in politics and warfare and every other thing, right? We, we want to be, we desperately want to be the 51st. We want a seat at the table, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And my whole point has been we are not that. We are our own entity, right? And we shouldn't be patterning our film industry or anything else on what America has done, right, mm. because we're crazy to do that. The UK have not done that with their film industry. They had a very vibrant industry through the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And, yes, a lot of the Alfred Hitchcock and people who came from the UK film industry eventually went to the US because that's where all the money is now and was in the 50s and 60s. And they were just dragging him over with just sheer, you know, offering him lots of money. But they developed their own cinematic voice and their own way in the industry with all the studios that they construct, et cetera, to make great films of their own type. We've never done that. All we are able 
capable of doing here is either really crappy low-budget films that no one ever sees or we try and bring those Americans here and their dollars here and try and give them more dollars to make them want to come here, right? Yeah. But that's not what we should be doing. We should be building our own industry and making that vibrant, you know, and that's something that funding bodies unfortunately have never done. You know, you used an interesting word before about devaluing, and the interview we, it started out about how music probably set the pace in terms of devaluing itself. The film industry follows the music industry. Yes. Now we're in a sort of a point where instant access, people's concentration powers to go to a two-hour movie, invest in dialogue, invest in a, a narrative, and take your phone away. And but I still think there's, as we all know, there's room for great art. It will find an audience if it's cultivated and nurtured. You're part of a director. You had Philip Noyce in. All these great directors have come from this country. They learn how to work film and crews and difficult conditions that when they went to Hollywood, you know, yourself included, were very much embraced for their work ethic, their innovation, their ability to work under budget. I have this thing called a new model, which is how we need to build a new industry, a new basis for filmmakers that services filmmakers, right? You know, the, the old model and the one that Australia plugs into is about making money for rich people in Hollywood, right? That's that's what it is. That's what the film industry is, right? Mm. That I can make a movie like iRobot, which has made close to a billion dollars in today's money, and I had a percentage of gross on that, I've not seen a cent from that film, right? And the reason I haven't seen a cent is because they use, they deploy this stuff called creative accounting, right? They go, I oh, know we spent so much marketing and blah, which is complete and fucking bullshit, right? Yeah. And I've had, you know, Gore Verbinski, who's a friend, has taken them to court over Pirates of the Caribbean. And I was going to do that, except, you know, I got talked off the ledge because they're going, not only won't you work again because you'll be black banned in Hollywood, but you may not win. You know, they've got much more expensive lawyers than you can afford. And I, yeah. and I cowardly went, you're right. <laughs> So this is the industry that, which is basically a mafia, basically Hollywood is a mafia. It's mm-hmm. been it was set up that way and it has been forevermore. And this is the industry that Australia are trying to plug into, right? Mm. And everyone all over the world is trying to plug into. So I go, just don't plug into it. Use all those tax, all that tax support, giving to Marvel and to ILM who set up here, millions and millions of Australian tax dollars, right? It's okay if it's someone like Baz, you know, bringing a Warner Brothers production or me or whatever. That's fine. At least we're Australians, right? It's not okay to be giving $6 million to Industrial Light and Magic who don't need your $6 million. So they set up a company here that directly competes with all the other VFX companies that are Australian, right? Mm. That's not okay. Mm. It's absolutely not okay, right? And so... I go, just don't plug into that. Create an alternative model, an alternative industry. And because I have no, even though I've tried, I have no real sway over the the authorities, the government bodies that have legislate this stuff, you know. And it's really, we're talking about government, right? We're not talking about the good people at Screen Australia and places in Crete, New South Wales who have to somehow juggle this shit, right? 
it's coming from the top, but build something completely new. So I'm like, I'm building it in my own way on yeah. an individual basis because I don't know how I don't know how else to affect this this system, you know, other than coming on things like this and blabbing away. I am so glad you have because you've enlightened me. Yeah, and I'm quite frankly more entertaining interview that someone might actually watch. You're more than entertaining, mate. But we're we're going to insert the Frank Zappa one minute grab. <laughs> Remember the 60s, you know, that era that a lot of people, you know, have these glorious memories of, which they really weren't that great those years. But one thing that did happen during the 60s was some music of an unusual or experimental nature didn't get recorded and didn't get released. Now look at who the executives were in those companies at those times. Not ship young guys. These were cigar-chomping old guys who looked at the product that came and said, I don't know. Who knows what it is? Record it, stick it out of it, it's all right. We were better off with those guys than we are now with the supposedly hip young executives, you know, who are making the decisions of what people should see and hear in the marketplace. These, the young guys are more conservative and more dangerous to the art form than the old guys with the cigars ever were. He's absolutely right. Yeah. You know, and that was the same in the film industry. Yeah. The thing is now it's marketing runs the film industry, right, the marketing department. And I've seen it take place in front of my very eyes and it's terrifying because yeah. it's always like, well, what do you think, JR, and what do you think, BG, BJ, and what do you think? You know, it's like no one will make a call. And in the old days it was those mogul-type guys who are, you know, as trustworthy as a used car salesman, but at the end of the day they say we're doing this movie and you know they're going to do the movie, right? You don't get all the bullshit and, you know, they probably had a little bit more taste than this consensus opinion crap that goes on. Oh, let's let's do some market research and see whether people know what that word means in the title. Uh, yeah, and let's put that into a fun... It's mind-boggling. It really is. The last thing I was just going to mention, I'll, I'll throw it at B, I dominate as always, but... Uh, uh, I happened to be around 2008 at a conf- work conference in the city and I was veering out of Burke Street and I was like, Jesus, I'm being directed all way off this road and that road and there was all these like zombies apocalypse on the steps of Parliament and next thing you know, I parked the car and looked over and there was the Nicolas Cage movie you were making in this city called Knowing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think Melbourne was doubling as Boston, I think, at the time, potentially, I think. Um, yeah, yes, uh, it was. Yeah. Any uh, Nicolas Cage uh, uh, anecdotes working with him? Was he good, oh, good to, do, to well, work with? Nick's a, Nick's a genius and he's a surrealist um, and we are very compatible people. We make each other laugh a lot. I'd love to do another movie with him. I, mean, I think he did one in Perth, didn't he? He yeah, did. Just, yeah. I think he's doing it now recently. Yeah. At least he's been in my country again, which is nice. Yeah. Earth is only barely my 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 country. Great guy. He's he's you know as I say he's a surrealist. There were a lot of moments that were amusing. He's a bit of a method actor too, Nick, which is which is great. You know, it's terrific. Um, yeah. And I've worked with all the traditional old fashioned types and and method actors and and it's like whatever work. Who you got for your new movie? Um, no one that well, Anthony Lapaglia is uh, playing a role. Oh, fantastic. A girl by the name of Mallory Jansen, who you may not have heard of, is the lead. Um, she's an Aussie girl who's doing well for herself in LA at the moment. I said early on with this film, I only wanted to cast Aussies in this film. Right. And uh, Lindsay Farris is the other the other Aussie guy that we've got so far. And so far I've cast three Aussies who all live in Los Angeles. 
<laughs> so that's added to the but to the air. Is that where you are still? No, I'm in Sydney. Oh, you are. Yeah. That's how I thought Aussie actors. I can get get some good ones in Sydney, right? But yeah. yeah, they're all all the good ones that I want. They're all in Los Angeles, right? That's where they work, you know. And and I can't blame them in some ways. So all the uh, principal photography is done now. It's in the can. Start shooting in uh, May, I think, at this stage. Okay. So we're okay because it's a virtual production. We're building the world. We have to build all your environments before you shoot. So. Yeah. And it gets projected on a big screen behind the actors. So. Well, let me know yeah. if you need any extras. I've got a daughter who's an actress and she's amazing. There ain't a lot of extras in the film, unfortunately. <laughs> All robots. Yeah. All robots. I just want to, you know, from my behalf, just thank you for coming on. Um, I love your passion. I love your, your attitude to just your, your craft and just to the industry as a whole because I think it mirrors many out there. And some of your movies, you know, have a, a longevity to them. A, a film like Dark City you know, I think has really aged well. It's just grown over time. It's one of my favourites. I can't wait to just keep sort of immersing myself in in, in future works. And, uh, again, thank you for coming on today. Uh, anything we can do to plug anything you're doing, we'd welcome the chance. And, uh, you know, just thank you for, for giving the time. You can plug my Patreon, which is my name, I think it is. I don't know. But also the other thing you could plug, which I'd really appreciate, is I have this um, streamer called Vidiverse, uh, vidiverse.com, which is a uh, shows uh, we have about 200 short films and some features as well from independent filmmakers all over the world. There's some of my own stuff on there as well, but it's designed to be a kind of a alternate Netflix and it's doing well. I mean, we've got a lot of people uh, subscribing to it at the moment. It's cheap. What's the site? V-I-D-I-V-E-R-S-E.com. Right. Right. Um, right. Like universe, but video-verse. Yes. Obviously, any any more support we can get, all the better. And we we split any uh, subscribers that we get, any income we make, we split 50-50 with the filmmakers themselves. So Excellent. my Patreon is great if people just want to give me money, which, ah, I, okay. which I always appreciate. Um, yeah, we like those too. We've got a little yeah. Patreon service that help us fund this little exercise. Yeah, but uh, yeah. arts doesn't come cheap. You know, if everyone, everyone wants to spend nothing and enjoy the maximum, don't they? But it comes at a, at a cost and a, yeah, uh, both a financial and an emotional cost. I mean, yeah. you know, when you put your heart and soul into something, I, I sense is important. Yeah, mm-hmm. excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. You were both lovely to talk to. Thank you so much for your insight into the uh, into your industry. That was fantastic. And thank you for your time on coming on to the show. And uh, we'd love to um, plug your new ventures. Um, just let us know what they are as, as they come through. Right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Paul Jolly from Sydney, and this is The Big Rat. Well, that was great, wasn't it? Um, you know, thanks, Alex, for coming on. You know, he gave up a lot of his time. And, you know, again, as I said at the outset, just thorough, honest, you know, has a stance, uh, passionate about his craft, and it's doing for the right reasons. And I think, you know, like in excess of a band and some of the top-notch bands and artists out there, it's an art. And I think Alex takes his art ever so seriously and passionately and does it, you know, not for commerciality motives, you know, primarily. He does it for the for the uh, auteur's sake of of art. Uh, sounds like a 10cc song, art for art's sake. He, he really does. So, you know, he's there for the right reason. So thank you, Alex, for jumping on. Yeah, very interesting guy. Great interview there. So thank you very much, Alex. 
All right. Well, we've got competitions, B, and I believe this is a little thing in your wheelhouse. You'll put a little video together. Do you want to share the listeners what this comp's about? Yeah, because I thought you all needed a bit of a visual. So I've put it out okay. onto Instagram and onto Facebook as of last week. So I hope you can enjoy that and have a look at some of the uh, things that we've put together. The main prize is the two tickets to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And hopefully by now... We know that they've went into the nominations, but who knows? Who knows? So, um, yeah, so they're there even for another year. So for you and a friend or a loved one, you can go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on us. So thank you for the person that um, donated that and doesn't want to be recognised. We just love you. Thank you very, very much. Okay, to enter the competition, you have to be a patron or you have to donate $10 to the podcast and the um, the information will be on the uh, in the link onto this um, podcast. There, if you can't make it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we do have another package. So it's one or the other. It's up to you. And that package we've got together, and there's just loads of stuff in there, isn't there, Hayden? Yep. So we've got some um, a signed CD, a key ring, which um, is very, very rare from the rock and roll. I'm sorry, from the rock star um, in excess um, series. Yeah, yeah, from the series. Yeah. Actually, it's from Kirk. Kirk gave it to me as well. So, yeah, been in Kirk's hands. He also gave me a um, some guitar picks, and this, one of the guitar picks are from him is in there too. Um, we've also put some posters in there. And then the big item is the tour brochure. Um, of the In Excess tour that was going to happen in 97 but unfortunately didn't happen for as we know because of Michael passing away so um, and we know that that went for over $600 when we auctioned that a few years ago so the package itself must be worth around about $1,000 so we're giving that away all you need to do is if you're a patron you can just enter but if you're not a patron it's a $10 entry is that right? And patrons you still need to let us know for me to put you into the draw so you still okay. need to email me or message um, my, me um, or the one of the team um, so we know to put your name into the hat and nobody likes drawing a name out of a hat more no. than oh and and the expiry date uh, sorry the closing date will be the 31st of March so okay. therefore I was working that out while Hayden it? was doing a, a bit of a an, <laughs> we, were, we were coming on air and Hayden took two telephone calls so while I was doing that I was looking at dates so yeah 7th of um, April will be the date um, uh, we will announce the winner. Okay. So you've got quite a while, but still, get on it. <laughs> All right. Well, upcoming episodes, uh, just to remind everybody, uh, our narrative time frame. we are entering the millennium next week, B. We're entering the year 2000 uh, within excess. So we've come off Michael in 1999. Uh, we've come off the Terence Trent Darby sort of concert sort of series in 99. We will be talking about in excess in the new millennium next week. And year 2000 was a very significant year maybe not publicly in terms of the bigger picture, but just privately for the band and some of the decisions they made um, in terms of proceeding. So I'm going to tackle that and dive a bit deeper uh, next week on that. Um, and also too, but we're going to go with a bit of a tribute song today. And of course, the theme being Kiss the Dirt, uh, we're going to go with that. But we thought we would do a live version, which was at the Rock and Royal show in Melbourne. Uh, on the 4th of November, 1985. Uh, Many people have this video or DVD or can stream it. I think you can get it off Spotify. Uh, But this was the second track played that night and we thought it'd be good to hear Kiss the Dirt live uh, in its very early days 
actually even before it was a single, this was uh, played in uh, November 85. It became a single in around about February uh, 86, I think. So uh, this is as raw and new and rare and played live uh, as you'll ever see. So we're going to go out with that with our tribute song today, Great. B. Great. Let's put it on. What have you got to say to the viewers oh, and I'll the s- listeners? Oh, I'll say it's a goodbye from me. And I'll say it's a goodbye from me. All right, then. See you, Australia and the world. <laughs> <laughs> Find the seeds of doubt To water them with your tears Think about all the years You'd rather be
this is the Dutchie, and you've been listening to In Excess, Access All Areas with Hayden and B. Thank you.